0: Well, I'm very, very honored uh, to be with you this, uh, this week. Um, Mike didn't mention uh, is that on Thursday, I'm sorry, this past Saturday, I became the parent of a Pepperdine alumni. Yeah. So it is very exciting to be part of the, is, that, is it the Wave family? I don't, I'm not quite sure what to call myself, a wavelet? I don't know. There's all sorts of little things with that. Um, so yeah, my daughter was here for four years, and as you all know, it was the foremost, Turbulent, exciting, crazy years for any person um, I remember um, the first time I came on campus after I dropped her off for, for college um, was actually uh, when I was here visiting her because uh, I was speaking at Golden Gate Seminary down the street, little, you know way down the street, uh, but I was speaking there, and then uh, my daughter calls me and says, uh, "Dad, something has happened." It was like uh, two o'clock in the morning, and of course, as many of you know, that was actually the night of the of the shooting uh, that, that occurred in Calabasas. Uh, so the next morning I, I do my, my talk and I rush over to check in on her. Oh, campus is subdued. They're having moments of lament. Um, and obviously, as many of you may recall, that was just the shocking moment because the Pepperdine student was killed at that, at that, um, at that event. Um, and so she seemed okay. She seemed in good hands with the, with the faculty and staff here at Pepperdine. So I go to the airport, I'm at the airport, I'm ready to get on my red eye, guess what happens? My daughter calls me again, says, dad, they're about to evacuate the campus because the fire is headed in this direction. So you may not remember, that happened like within a day of each other. After the shooting that was right here, a Pepperdine student is shot, the campus is still in mourning and in that, in that intense period, and then uh, that's when that, uh, the, the fire started moving in. Uh, so those were some interests. That was her freshman year. So that was an interesting year. And then, of course, sophomore year, she was studying abroad. She loved it. Um, I got to go visit her uh, in the Lausanne program, and it was just fantastic to seeing her. Uh, she met her boyfriend there, and so that's always pretty fun. Uh, so they've been dating now for two and a half years. No ring yet, but that's okay. That's... That, that's a different generation. The ring before spring was like 20, 30 years ago. Now it's <laughs> del- del- delayed a little more than it used to be. Uh, so anyway, I say all that to just say that um, I have been thrilled um, and really um, touched by the way that Pepperdine took care of my daughter these last four years. And so I want to thank those of you who are part of the community here and the faculty and staff that this has really been something that has warmed my heart. Uh, and that's been just a real gift to see my daughter flourish uh, in this environment. So. She still lives off campus. She got an off-campus apartment last year, and so she's right at the base of the hill in the Stinkies, uh, which is the, the, the apartment complex down at the bottom of the hill. Um, so she'll be there for the rest of the month, uh, then, and then coming back home. Um, so I'm really uh, honored to be a part of this gathering uh, because it's, uh, in some ways, a way to pay back the the gift that Pepperdine has been to, uh, to me and my family. Um, I want to. Uh, Begin with a story, or just kind of give you a context of my life. Um, I am now well into my 50s. I know, you can't tell, right? Yeah, (laughs) You've heard the phrase, uh, black don't crack, Asian don't raisin. We age really well. (laughs) I am in my mid-50s. Now, when I turned 50 years old, however, I said, this is the decade, the decade of the 50s, where I am really going to fulfill the the New Year's resolution I've made every single year of my life, which is, this is the year I get fit. This is the year that I get healthy. So I turned 50, and I said, this is the year I got to do this. So I'm an academic researcher, and I like to research things. So I said, I'm going to research this. And I went to the academic researcher's most important tool. It's called Google. You might have heard of this. <laughs> and so I go on Google, and I type in what's a great exercise regimen for, for this time. And I find out it's something called CrossFit. Any of you heard of this? Any of you have done this, CrossFit? And I really jibed with CrossFit because the philosophy behind CrossFit is called muscle confusion. That's the whole concept of CrossFit. And I said, that's me. That's my approach to exercise. And the way I apply it is I just don't go to the gym for months. And then at the end of that, I go to the gym and my muscles are really confused what we're doing. (laughs) They get really hard and angry. Uh, So that's, that's what I was thinking about as I've been kind of working through my physical health that something like muscle confusion, or maybe another way to think of it, is a sense of a disruption, a discomfort, is actually an appropriate way to get to certain types of health. And if that is an appropriate way, and that is weightlifting and running, those are not normal things to do, but it disrupts your body. It creates a discomfort that leads to greater strength and greater health. And if that's true of our physical body, I actually think it's also true of our spiritual lives as well, that we need certain spiritual disruption in order for there to be growth. Uh, a, um, a secular philosopher by the Richard Sennett put it this way, without a disturbed sense of ourselves, why would any of us ever want to change? He was writing about how so many of us have these noble uh, intentions, wanting to do good and wanting to do good things, but... Most of us are not, as he describes it, knocking on the door of crack houses because that's not the way we're wired. Unless something disruptive happens, your daughter becomes hooked on drugs, your son is in a space where he shouldn't be, then you go down to that space because that disruption has caused you to change the way you look at the world. Disruption has caused that. And part of the, the thing I really like to appreciate about this conference theme is that the, yeah, the images that you saw earlier uh, in that wonderful presentation, uh, the, the idea of a fuller picture of Jesus, a deeper understanding of Jesus, that's a disruption. Because when we start knowing Jesus in a way that is not comfortable for us, and it instead creates a disruption, is that one of those spaces that actually deepens our faith and strengthens our faith? So, what we want to do in this conference, I believe, and in this session in particular, is not just engage a part of who Jesus is, but the whole and fullness of who Jesus is. And we'll pick up on this tomorrow as well. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 through 7, uh, which will give us the framework that leads us into uh, the Old Testament passage that I want to speak on. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 through 7. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion. And the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as we share abundantly, just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Lord, speak to us from your words that we might be reminded that our sharing of life with you is not just in joy and comfort, but it is also in suffering and in troubles and in distress. We ask this in your name. Amen. You'll notice in this passage that, and I actually didn't actually put in yellow all the other portions of this, but it talks about troubles and suffering and distress. Uh, It talks about comfort, but most of us kind of jump to the comfort piece. We want to be comforted. We want to be comforting to our churches. We want to bring comfort to our communities. We forget that half of the story here is actually suffering. The suffering of Jesus, the suffering of Paul, and preparing you for suffering. Not something that just happened in the past, but you are being prepared for more suffering. So you see this, and not just in this first passage, but all throughout the book of 2 Corinthians, this alternating of themes of suffering and comfort. Comfort and suffering, both are important themes and categories. But again, our tendency in Western culture is to gravitate towards the comfort part, and to disallow or, or disregard the suffering part. And that's why we oftentimes have only half the picture of Jesus. Jesus is our comforter, our help, on by our side, the soon-in-coming, the triumphant king. But we also know that Jesus was one who walked through distress, the suffering servant. And we need that disruption in order to get the full picture of Jesus. Um, I, I started studying this when I uh, wrote my book on uh, Lamentations. And uh, what I was studying was the absence of lament or the absence of engaging suffering in your typical American church. Uh, and this is particularly uniquely American, but uh, Western in general. The absence of lament, the absence of suffering narratives in the church. Uh, Dr. Uh, Denise Hopkins, who teaches at Wesley Seminary, an Old Testament scholar, was examining the wor- worship life of liturgical tradition or liturgy churches. Uh, that would be the Catholics, the Episcopalians, the Anglicans, uh, Lutherans, etc. And uh, built into their worship pattern are lament because you're supposed to read through the psalms and read lament psalms as well as sing lament songs and hymns to accompany these stories and uh, expressions of lament. But Dr. Hopkins noted that many of these churches, when it came time to read lament psalms or sing lament hymns, they would drop it from their liturgy and replace it with happier songs and happier psalms, hymns. Uh, Glenn Pemberton did a very similar study, but he looked at Baptist, Presbyterian, and congregational churches and looked at their hymnal. And as he looked at their hymnals, he recognized that in the psalms, which you could argue is like the spiritual uh, worship hymn book of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, 60% of the psalms are psalms about celebration, about all the good things that God has done. We'll call these the hymns of praise. But 40% of the psalms that uh, Pemberton notes are what we call psalms of lament. And they're about suffering and pain and recognizing suffering and pain. But Pemberton notes that even though it is not quite 50-50, but like a 60-40 split in the worship life of Israel, that uh, in the Baptist and Presbyterian hymnals, it was more likely to be 80 to 85% of the hymns were celebratory hymns. And only about 10 or 15% of the hymns were suffering hymns uh, or songs uh, songs of lament. Uh, By the way, that's just what's in the hymnal and not what's typically sung on a Sunday morning. Uh, So I said, well, let's take a look at contemporary Christian worship. How does contemporary Christian worship compare to the liturgical tradition or to the traditional hymn worship tradition? And so I don't know if you know this, but... um, CCLI licenses pretty much all of contemporary Christian worship music. So you get a license from them, you pay a couple hundred dollars, and then every time you project the worship song, you write a little number at the bottom to show that you have that permission. Uh, You should be doing this, but once you sing that song, you're supposed to report back to them and let them know that uh, you sang that song. Why? Because they collate all that information because they have to distribute the funds to the songwriter. So when you sing a song, every songwriter gets, I don't know, a tenth of a penny of a tenth of a penny. Something like that. But the intention is to keep an accurate record of how these songs are used. So they actually have a very accurate record of what is typically sung on a Sunday or a weekend in Christian gatherings. So every year in August, they produce what's called the top 100 most popular contemporary Christian worship songs. And I thought i will do just kind of an exercise of to see what is the contemporary worship life like in our, in our congregation. So I went through every song and every title. Sorry, my TA, I made my TA go through every song and every title to say what percent. I, I supervise this work, but what percentage of those hymns or those songs are songs of celebration versus songs of lament? How many of you say, just like in the Bible, of our top 100 contemporary worship songs are songs of lament. about 25%? about 15%? My estimation is that somewhere between 5 to 10 out of the top 100 contemporary worship songs are what we would call lament. And I was using the word lament as generously as I possibly could. The song starts, I cry out. Yes, lament! I cry out for joy. No, I'm still counting it. It's so pathetic. How few lament songs we have. So we're, we're talking about a worship life that doesn't reflect half of what the scripture oftentimes talks about. We're talking about a worship life that loves the comfort and the triumph and the victory. But we don't love the distress and the trouble and the suffering. Um, as many of you know, I, I, uh, as I mentioned, I wrote a commentary on the book of Lamentations and said, so no, I'm contractually obligated to now speak about Lamentations. <laughs> Always read the fine print on your book contracts. Um, so I spent five years on this book. I think I sold about five copies. Uh, and the reason is nobody wanted a book on Lamentations, right? I mean, how many of you ever heard an entire sermon series, not just that one positive verse in the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 22, but an entire sermon series on the book of Lamentations. Right? Yeah. It's, I'm, every once in a while, a group of thousands of people, one person will raise their hand, or a couple of people raise their hand, members of my church maybe. Uh, so, <laughs> but Lamentation is not what we talk about in the church. Why We want, to, we want the triumph. We want the victory. We want the celebration. Our church, especially in the U.S., has become obsessed with success, victory, and triumph. And by overemphasizing triumph, we again have lost the narrative of suffering. So a few years away- ago, I went away on sabbatical. Uh, I was teaching in North Park at the time, and it granted me a year for further study. Uh, and uh, those of you who have been pastors know that if you go away for even a couple of weeks, the amount of junk mail that you get. Isn't it amazing how much Christian junk mail accumulates? I went away for a year. The amount of junk mail was about this high. Now, ironically, a lot of them were from environmental agencies asking me to save paper. But there was all this (laughs) piles of paper, and I started throwing stuff out. But something caught my eye, and it was a little DVD. And it was a DVD from a well-known, prominent, uh, evangelical, U.S.-based relief agency. And I was curious by this because the cover said, the poor you will not always have with Now, if I remember my Bible, it's like, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said the exact opposite. So I, I looked at that. and said, oh, this is great, because, you know, as a seminary professor, I always look for kind of way people misuse Scripture so I can use them in conferences like this. So <laughs> I said, I'm going to open up this DVD and check it out. And there was a brochure that was in the, um, in the DVD, <clears throat> and the emphasis on the brochure was... It is up to the U.S. church, because we are special, exceptional people, and we have the knowledge and the know-how and the resources to fix the problems of global poverty in the world. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we don't address the issue of extreme global, global poverty. We should. As a Christian church, we should wake up to these things and, 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 and use our resources to serve the poor. However, the idea in this DVD and, and, uh, and content Was that there was something unique and exceptional about the US church, and therefore we have the know-how, the knowledge, and the responsibility, and maybe even the right to impose our our way of thinking on Africa so that we can save Africa from poverty. Now, the irony, of course, is that's actually how Africa got into poverty in the first place when the European says, Oh, we know what to do with you people. We know what to do. We're gonna come and enslave, and we're gonna come and take your resources. And that's how Africa got its problems in the first place. And now we're trying to fix, because there was an underlying assumption of exceptionalism, an underlying assumption that there's something so special about the U.S. church that we can go and solve the world's problems without even really hearing from those who are actually suffering. So Lamentations provides a corrective to that kind of of social, political, economic, ecclesial assumption that we've got the answers. And those who are suffering are not going to help us at all, but we're going to go and help them. Uh, So let me talk about the context of the Book of Lamentations and what happens in the Book of Lamentations. Um, The background most of you already know, Jerusalem um, is is the city in question that is being talked about in the Book of Lamentations. Uh, Jerusalem, of course, was the capital of Israel. And Jerusalem was like the centerpiece of, uh, of, of Israel. It's the capital. It's David's city. The palace is there, uh, but of course the temple is there, and we know that under David and Solomon, Israel was this superpower, great nation with military strength and uh, economic power, and it was noted for its beautiful buildings, particularly the temple filled with gold, silver, precious metals, and precious stones. We know about the queen of uh, Queen Sheba coming in and visiting Solomon and beholding this majestic temple, and people marvelled for miles and miles around, and uh, and that was uh, the, kind of the pinnacle of Israel's history, this exceptional triumphalistic moment. But we also, unfortunately, know the rest of the story in the Old Testament, that because of idolatry and disobedience, the people of God uh, begin to worship false idols, and God needs to bring judgment for their false worship. So first he wipes out the northern kingdom of Israel, and then the southern kingdom, and all that's left is the city of Jerusalem. Eventually, the Babylonians lay siege to, uh, to Jerusalem. They lay it to waste. They tear down everything in sight. Uh, they burned the crops, salt the fields, a land once flowing with milk and honey. is now a desolate land. And, of course, worst of all, as many of you know in the biblical account, they take the people of God into exile, into Babylon. Now, one quick note about exile. We'll talk about this a little more tomorrow. But exile was not every single person. Uh, you just don't do that. That's just not the way you do exile. Exile is Daniel and his friend. So they took those who could read or write, those who were the prophets, the priests, the kings, the men and they took those who they said, oh, these people can rebuild that city. We don't want that. Jerusalem's never going to be a thorn in our side again, so let's get rid of all those who could read or write, all those who can rebuild the city, and take them away into Babylon. So who's left? The widows, the orphans, the women, the children, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick. They're the only ones. The most suffering of the community are the ones that are left behind. So into this context of brokenness, suffering, Distress and hardship. The prophet Jeremiah writes to the exile. This is what the Lord God Almighty, uh, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. First of all, we recognize that this letter is to those in Babylon. Not to those in Jerusalem, but Jeremiah is writing to those in Babylonian captivity. And so he's writing to Babylon and he's saying to them, of all things, in Babylon, you are still to live your life. You are still to act like the people of God. This is the kicker. It says, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. That phrase... Seek the peace. Used all over the Bible. Seek the shalom. Um, And oftentimes it's used with a particular city. And every time a city is associated with the word peace, seek the peace, it's obviously Jerusalem. Seek the peace of Jerusalem. Total sense. Jerusalem is the capital city of God. Jerusalem is David's city. Uh, Jerusalem is is the temple, place where the temple resides. Of course you seek the peace of Jerusalem, But in this passage, we hear, not seek the peace of Jerusalem, but seek the peace of Babylon. Babylon. Now, if you are in Babylon, you get this letter, and Jeremiah, Yahweh says through Jeremiah, seek the peace of Babylon, you are very confused. Because you haven't heard that. You've heard, seek the peace of Jerusalem, but not seek the peace of Babylon. What's Babylon? Babylon is Washington, D.C., Wall Street, Hollywood, Malibu, Las Vegas, all rolled into one. Everything that is wrong with society, not that there's anything wrong with Malibu, but everything that is wrong with society rolled into one. And now God is telling us to seek the peace, not of his city, the blessed city of Jerusalem, but to seek the peace of Babylon. How can that be? Well, that's because as God's people, in the midst of suffering, we're still God's people. In the midst of distress, we're still God's people. In the midst of everything taken away from us, we're still God's people. We do not have any, any right to run away and hide from a world just because we are in distress and suffering. Instead, we are called to be the salt and light, to seek the shalom, to seek the prosperity of even the most wicked of places, the places like Babylon. So the temptation for God's people at this moment in Israel's history is to run away and hide. And Jeremiah the prophet says to God's people, that is not an option for you. In my studies of of church history, however, particularly U.S. history, one one of my doctorates is in the area of U.S. church history, is that we find repeatedly that churches in the U.S. tend to run away from suffering and distress and challenges rather than stay and walk the community through them. One early example occurs at the turn of this uh, uh, in the 19th century and what was happening post-Civil War and going in through the Industrial Revolution all the way through post-World War II is uh, the changing landscape of urban and urban uh, settings in the U.S. So when you look at the history of cities and the relationship to the church, the church initially saw the city as great places where the gospel will flourish. You might remember John Winthrop, the, the uh, uh, Massachusetts governor, one of the early Massachusetts governor, pulls up to the great city of Boston in, uh, in, his, uh, in his ship, and he w- uh, it's not a great city yet. But what does he say? I see in the future uh, a city set on a hill. Right? And in fact, Boston, I, I, I went to the school there and pastored there, takes that very seriously. One of the most important neighborhoods in Boston is called Beacon Hill. Uh, the most significant street that bisects the entire city is called Beacon Street, Uh, the idea of Boston as a place where the light of the gospel will shine, that comes from John Winthrop, the early colonial narrative that these urban centers in the new world are going to be places where the light of the gospel shines forth. And that lasts for several centuries until the uh, late 19th century and the early 20th century. What happens? the cities begin to change. The cities go from being all white Anglo-Saxon Protestants to much different demographics in these So in the Industrial Revolution, you're getting an influx of immigration, not from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe, I'm sorry, Northern Europe, not Swedish Lutherans and, and German Lutherans and Scottish Presbyterians. That's not the group that starts coming in large numbers during the Industrial Revolution. It's actually Italian Catholics and Polish Jew and Greek Orthodox. And all of a sudden, the neighborhoods that used to be white Anglo-Saxon Protestants were not quite so white Anglo-Saxon Protestant anymore. And people began to get a little nervous about how these changes were occurring. Second factor was actually what we call the Great Migration. And the Great Migration was not from outside of the U.S., it was within the U.S., and that was the influx of African Americans from the southern states, post-Civil War, all the way through the World Wars, Uh, up from the southern states to the northern city. So uh, they might have uh, been off the plantation in in Mississippi one generation earlier. And there's no future on these plantations, obviously. So let's take the train up north to go to places like Chicago and Detroit and Cleveland and Buffalo and New York and Baltimore and Philadelphia. And yes, even on some out to the west coast into L.A. and, and places like that and Oakland. So what you're beginning to see is this shifting of the demographics, so that these northern cities in particular that were viewed as cities set on a hill where the light of the gospel would shine forth, when all those good things were happening because it was filled with white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, all of a sudden these cities were now filled with Italian Jew, Italian Catholics, Russian Jews, and African Americans from the South. So that perception begins the change of the city. And as many of you know historically, That led to significant white flight out of the urban center. It led to white churches, white denominations, and yes, white Christian colleges and seminaries to leave urban centers and to move to the more affluent and safer suburb. And so we see this pattern all throughout the end of the uh, Civil War all the way through to even modern times where you'll notice that almost all of the CCUC schools, Christian colleges, almost all of them, with one or two exceptions, are going to be in wealthy suburban neighborhoods or even rural neighborhoods. There are a few exceptions, but generally you'll find these Christian colleges fled the city and moved away from these urban environments. I think what we started seeing then is um, it reflected in the architecture of its time. So during the height of white flight, 1940s, 50s, 60s, and even into the 1970s, uh, this was really noted in the uh, right after World War II. As many of you know, the suburban communities began to boom, and the GI Bill, which was available, uh, and, and, and redlining, there were all these factors that allowed white communities to leave urban centers and move to suburban neighborhoods. But communities of color could not leave urban communities and uh, move to the urban uh, suburban neighborhoods. So what you saw was a lot of old um, churches that got abandoned in the inner cities neighborhood. But even now, if you go through, especially in the Midwest and on the East Coast, you go through these urban centers, uh, like in Minneapolis, you'll see these massive, beautiful buildings built 100, 150 years ago, and they have 50 people meeting in their church. Uh, the church that I pastored in Boston, Right down the street, where there's a small building about the size of this building, we crammed 250 people in that building. But right down the street, there was this massive building, 1,500 capacity. They had 12 people. Because it was started as a Baptist church 150 years ago when there were white Baptists in the city of Boston. And then they all moved to the suburbs and abandoned the building. And there were a few people left. They were senior citizens, mostly elderly women who are still in that church, but the demographics had changed. Those buildings, and eventually in the city of Boston, by the way, they become community centers, They become um, uh, art uh, museums. They become anything, condos, converted into condos. They stop being places of worship because these buildings have now been abandoned and moved to the suburban neighborhoods. And in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, many of the suburban churches are built in these communities. They have a sanctuary that looks like this. Have you all seen this? A little more, again, in the Midwest and in the East Coast, but you'll see church buildings that look like this. And um, I was about eight years old in the 70s when my church uh, had built a new building, and this is what the building looked like. And it was January, and, you know, if you're from California, you don't know this, but there's actually cold weather in other parts of the, of the, of the nation. And so in this cold weather, it was January, so it's really cold, right? So you walk in, because where are the heating vents? They're along the, the baseboard. So, but what happens to hot air? It rises, right? So you have a sanctuary that looks like this. Where does all that warm air go? Right up into the rafters, right? So you literally have the frozen chosen, and you've got all the warm air up in the rafters, right? Then you build ceiling fans that push down the air, and then the charismatics and those who raise their hands can't worship with you because they keep hitting their hands on the ceiling fans. So you end up with... (laughs) Pentecostal joke. Uh, You end up with a sanctuary that doesn't make sense to me intellectually. So I'm looking at this thing. I'm eight years old. And even as an age old, I knew this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Whose idea was it? To, I'm freezing to death. All this hot air is up there. Whose idea was it to build the sanctuary to look like this? And the senior pastor gets up and says, it was my idea to build the sanctuary to look like this. And he says, we built it this way because I want you to picture this entire building turned upside down. What are you looking at when you see this building turn upside down? Yes, a bottom of a boat the hull of a ship. And he asked the question, where in the Bible do you read about a ship and how does that teach us about what our church is going to be? Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. Think, though, what that means for God's people in Noah's Ark, right? So the church is built as a safe haven from the world that is out there. And that's part of the narrative of white flight, right? Hey, our schools got bad in inner city Boston. Hey, there are gangs in the inner city of Chicago. Hey, you know, our property values are dropping in L.A. So we got to go to the suburb. And we got to get these safe havens, these Noah's Ark's, where we can hang out and be safe on Noah's Ark. Now, think then, though, about what you do on Noah's Ark versus what a church should do. In Noah's Ark, you take pieces of the world out there and you create Christianized versions in Noah's Ark. Right? So, hey, the world of secular art, we need to be safe from secular art, let's create Christian art. Oh, the world has secular schools, let's create safe Christian schools. The world has that terrible secular music, we'll make really bad Christian music. <laughs> and so you create these sanitized, less artistic, less deep versions of the world out there, because you're just taking pop culture and ripping it off and creating it in your Noah's Ark. Now... How do you do evangelism from Noah's Ark? Very badly. Here's how you do evangelism in Noah's Ark. Somebody is floating by, and you're like, hey, wait, that's Uncle Joe. We got to bring Uncle Joe onto the ark. He's one of us. He looks like us. He claps one three. We love Uncle Joe. Let's bring him onto the ark as fast as possible. So Uncle Joe is brought onto the ark. But then your neighbor floats by, and you pause because he borrowed your mower and has, still hasn't returned it. But more importantly, this neighbor might not fit on your ark. After all, uh, he's going to clap two-four, not one-three. And we only brought one bottle of sriracha. He looks like he likes hot sauce. We're going to run out real quick if we bring him onto the ark. In fact, I'm pretty sure there's an ark down the street that's more for his kind of people. And that actually led to some of the most extreme segregation in the American churches in the late 20th century. Michael Emerson, good friend, he was my provost at North Park. He did a research study on the level of segregation in the year 2000 in evangelical churches, Protestant, conservative Protestant churches, and found that the level of segregation in evangelical, conservative Protestant churches in the U.S., the only other time that level of segregation occurred in U.S. history was in the Deep South during Jim Crow law. It took laws and the Klan and the enforcement of those laws to get to the level of segregation that the evangelical church achieved all by itself. So we're talking about an approach to church that says, my primary concern is my comfort. My primary concern is that I feel safe on Noah's Ark. My primary concern is that I get to ride this thing and be safe with people that look like me and think like me and talk like me and act like me. That's what I want from my church And it is, unfortunately, the reality that many of us are recognizing has formed church life in the 20th and 21st century. We're going to pick up on this a little bit more tomorrow. But what we are moving towards then is a theology of lament that engages that suffering. And that we are at a place in U.S. history where suffering is now everywhere. Because we're seeing the decline of the church. And instead of looking for a triumphalistic answers or an exceptionalistic answers, we're exceptional, that's why we get to do things this way and the rest of the world doesn't, that's why we're going to flourish as a church. We're triumphal because if we're just smart Christians who put our minds to it, we'll figure this whole thing. Instead of clinging to these exceptional triumphalistic narratives, are we willing to engage the suffering narrative and therefore enter into lament? I raise this because we're at a conference. And um, many years ago, um, I still do, but this is pre-COVID, I used to go to a lot more conferences. And when you go to conferences, um, you kind of pick up certain patterns. For one, um, I went to these conferences 20, 30 years, and some of these pastors, they're still 29 years old after 20 years. It's amazing. (laughs) A young 29 upstart pastor 20 years ago, and he's still 29 years old. So these kinds of places really elevate and put forth These are the successful churches in America. Those are the ones you're supposed to model and emulate. So I'm not a big fan of these conferences, um, but I I have to go because, you know, my daughter went to Pepperdine. So so I'm going to these conferences, and as I'm going to these conferences, you know, they never ask me to speak on the platform. They ask me to do a workshop. So I'm doing a workshop, and I I started off as an extrovert when I was a pastor, but I'm much more of an introvert now. So uh, whenever I do my workshop, I look for the quietest, most you know, isolated room I could find and just get away from people because I don't want to engage what's going on out there. And so what I hear is that over and over again, as I'm at these conferences, people are constantly obsessed with success, and triumph, and victory, and how am I going to grow my church? And because I had been a church planter and I planted a church that was, you know, you might say successful because it was a multi-ethnic urban church that, you know, grew to a certain size in a certain time period, uh, people will come up and say, tell us about how you did it. What is the secret? What is the secret sauce of planning a church? Because that's what I want to do. Tell me what you did to plan a successful church. And I say, stop coming to these conferences. Step one, you paid $500 for your registration. I'm shooting myself in the foot right now. You paid $500 for registration. You paid $500 for airfare. You paid $500 for three nights at the Hyatt and another $500 for meals and books. You spent about $2,000 to be told nothing new. You go to the evangelism conferences and you're told, be nice to newcomers. Really? You had to pay $2,000 to learn that? You go to a church planning conference and says, make sure that they feel welcome. Really? You had to pay $2,000 to learn that? I said, save your money because the secret to a successful church is a praying mom, is a praying grandmother. My mom passed away two years ago, August of, of two, summer, uh, two summers ago, in the middle of COVID. I tell her story quite often because I want her memory to be those that continues to honor, to be continue to be honored. Um, She was not a successful person in the world. She was, in fact, a single mom. When we moved to the United States, my dad left our family, so she raised four kids by herself. Because of that, she worked two menial jobs. During the day from about 10 to 10, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m., she worked at an inner city carryout and uh, made chicken wings and steak subs and, and fries and wingdings, all that stuff that you do at an inner city carryout. She worked at a place where they had the plexiglass in the front and the lazy Susan that passed the money and the food back and forth. So she would work a 10 hour shift in the inner city carryout. Then she would rush to her night job. And from 11 to 6 or 10 30 to 6, she would work the night job where uh, she was a nurse's aide in a nursing home. Uh, inner-city nursing room. She would change the bedpans and be on call. Then she would rush home, fix breakfast for her kids, send us off to school, sleep for two hours, and then go back to her day job. She worked 20 hours a day, six days a week. And on Sunday, she made sure that she was at church. And then, of course, at church, she would be in the kitchen making food for the elders and the deacons those in the church. That was her life. And the crushing part of it is that during that time, people would look at her life, and say, that's not what an American is. And she was an immigrant. Because she was a single mom. And yes, we were poor, so we took food stamps. So she was a welfare poor. And so all this language and imagery of the devaluing of my mom, and yet, spiritually, there is no one richer, no one stronger, no one more powerful than my mom. Uh, she died when she was 88. When she was in her 60s, she showed me the condition of her knees. She lifted up her, her, her knees and said, and most of us, we have one kneecap on each knee. She had five. Why does she have five? Because she would kneel before God on a hard wooden floor every day for an hour or two a day for decades. And if you know, if you pray that way, you, your knees can't take it. And so her knees cracked open. So that when she knelt and prayed, her knees were conformed to the shape of the floor. That's called spiritual power. That's called seeking God and finding God in the midst of suffering. And it's a spirituality that I hunger for, that I can see and I saw demonstrated, but I don't fully understand. And that's my loss because I don't fully get, I got to see it up close, that kind of spirituality. And I'm wondering if that's what the church hungers for. Not the next hotshot pastor, not the next big church success story, not the person with all the degrees, but the praying grandmother on her knees, interceding for her children and her grandchildren, interceding in such a way that the gates of heaven open up, interceding in such a way in the midst of her suffering and lament. Is this the kind of faith we need? Is this the kind of church we need? Gracious God, call us as a people not obsessed with comfort and success, but those who are comforted by the midst, in, even in the midst of our suffering and our distress, prepare us for the suffering that is to come and call us to embrace the suffering that we walk in. But particularly, Lord, we ask that we might walk alongside those who are also suffering. We pray this in your name. Amen.